0: Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott.
1: The first verse of the Gospel of John tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God. A word is a medium by which thoughts are expressed. But here in the Gospel of John, the four-letter word is capitalized. Thus, the Apostle John has personalized the expression word. He later identifies the word with the person Jesus of Nazareth and calls him the Lamb of God and the Son of God. That's found in John 1, verse 29 and 34. So in the person of Jesus, God's thoughts are expressed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is still alive, and he is still expressing God's thoughts. The New Testament writers frequently affirm that the ability to understand Scripture rightly Is more a moral and spiritual capacity than intellectual. The natural, unspiritual man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's found in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. This idea is repeated several places in the New Testament. The Bible is written in such a way that all things necessary for our salvation and growth in our Christian life are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help, and who are willing to follow it. In Jesus, we see the heart nature and character of God at work. But liberal-minded theologians, modernist preachers, and the new atheists assassinate the character of God. They claim that a morally outrageous atmosphere pervades the Old Testament, and the God presented there is a cruel and vindictive monarch dangerous to all humanity. That opinion, however, is not how Jesus and his apostles regarded God and the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus spent the whole of his public ministry expounding the Old Testament scriptures. Never once did he warn his disciples about the supposed errors, flaws, and contradictions which present-day critics say they contain. On the contrary, Jesus met two disheartened disciples on the road to Emmaus on the way out of Jerusalem after the crucifixion and challenged them, saying, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ suffer these things, and to enter into his glory. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. That's found in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Later, Jesus said, All things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and then the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, as found in Luke 24, verses 44 through 46. This trio, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, was an expression to represent the whole of the Old Testament. How could Jesus make such a wide-sweeping statement if any parts of those scriptures were uninspired, incorrect, and contained contradictions, he said, "All things I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you." John fifteen verse fifteen. When Jesus was praying to the Father, he said of, of his disciples, "I have given unto them the words you gave me." John seventeen eight and. Verse 14, he regularly said, it is written, it is said, you have read. Thus, whenever Jesus referred to Old Testament scriptures, he invariably did so in terms calculated to inspire absolute confidence in all they contained, not just some parts of it. His actions accentuated the authority and reliability of the Old Testament scriptures. Thus the seal of divine approval is stamped upon the scriptures. Early Christians accepted that designation. The Apostle Peter affirmed that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. The first century deacon Stephen called the Old Testament scriptures the living oracles. The apostle Paul and the author of the book of Hebrews called them oracles. And the apostle Peter labeled them as the utterances of God. That can be found in Acts 7, verse 38, Romans 3, verse 2, Hebrews 5, verse 12, and 1 Peter 4, verse 11. You may ask, what is an oracle? An oracle is a message handed down from a divine source. Moses told the nation of Israel to keep the commandments of God and to teach them to their children so that they could observe them also. For it is not a futile thing for you because these words are your life. By them you shall prolong your days in the land you are crossing over the Jordan to possess. That's found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 47. See also Hebrews 4.12. Paul refers to the Old Testament writings as the holy scriptures, Romans 1, verse 2. This simply means sacred writings, Paul wrote this to Timothy. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then Paul adds, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Those quotations can be found in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15-17. through The word translated inspired comes from a Greek word meaning the words of Scripture was breathed out by God. The reference to breathing must be understood as a metaphor for God's speaking. Thus, all the words of Scripture are God's words. Consequently, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Throughout the history of Christianity, the greatest preachers have been those who have recognized that they have no authority in themselves, and have seen their duty as to explain the words of Scripture and to apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. Their preaching has drawn its power not from their opinions, not from their creative ideas, or their rhetorical skills but from God's words. The starting place in each Christian's growth is to have a firm conviction about the reliability and authority of the Bible. You will not make solid progress without it. The scriptures are a deposit of a vein of silver for our instruction and the reservoir for our hope. Romans 15, 4 relates, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The Bible is also the source of our faith. Romans 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Nevertheless, some people despise the Bible. Others deny it. Still others distort it. But the greatest enemy is the so-called Christian who simply disregards it. So if you deny the scriptural authority, your argument is with Jesus, not with me. Yet I personally know the power of the Word of God, It has changed my life, and it can change your life as well. The Word of God is saving for the sinner, strengthening for the saint, sufficient for the sufferer, and satisfying for the scholar. Wherever the biblical evidence leads, the Christian should follow. Whatever the Bible approves... The Christian should approve. Whatever the Bible affirms, the Christian should affirm. Whatever the Bible opposes, the Christian should oppose. For example, since the Bible condemns shedding innocent blood, Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17, 28, verse 17, and Deuteronomy 19, 10. And commands us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and advocate for the rights of all the unfortunate, Proverbs 31, verse 8. Then the Christian should oppose abortion because, unquestionably, abortion sheds innocent blood. The fetus in the womb cannot speak for itself, and if it loses its life because of an abortion, Certainly that would be classified as unfortunate. Abortion is something that is legal, but it is not moral. Why is it immoral? Because it violates a higher law, namely the law of God, while it is legal by the law of the land. Jesus is the believer's Lord, and that involves our personal commitment to his desires, his wishes, his interests, his concerns, and his commands. He calls his followers to be holy, to pray, to forgive, to make disciples, and to fellowship with him. His life on earth is our example, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2. The New Testament faith is based squarely upon the belief that in the life of, death and resurrection of the person Jesus of Nazareth God entered into history in a decisive fashion. In the cross we have a portrait of the cost of forgiveness the gift of grace to followers of Christ cost God his only begotten son. In the incarnation and the cross we see a portrait of God who acts to demonstrate his love for us At the time of his crucifixion, the disciples thought they had made a tragic mistake in thinking Jesus was the promised Messiah who would save his people and establish a new society. But at the very depth of their despair, they were suddenly faced with an entirely new development. Jesus was not dead, he was alive, he had risen from the grave. What the resurrection meant, therefore, was that Jesus really was the Messiah after all. With time, they realized Jesus had not freed them from Rome, but he had freed them from the chains that bound them to sin, death, and fear. And he can free you from despair and forgive you of everything which causes your conscience pain
0: Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.